Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. And uh, today on the program, my guest, the writer and cultural historian John Beckman, comes out in favor of, get this, fun. Certainly. I mean, I, I'm not a zealot for fun. Okay, maybe not a zealot, but certainly a pretty committed advocate. John says that fun in the USA is more than frivolity. It is fundamental to our democracy. Freedom-loving and fun-loving, he says, go hand-in-hand, all the way back to our earliest forefathers, certain of whom set forth upon this continent expressly to kick it and have a funky good time in a socially progressive fashion. And generations since have kept the party going in all kinds of new and ever-fresh directions. Of course, there has been pushback from various strains of Puritans and Blue Noses and Buzzkills, but the forces of fun have always triumphed in the end in ways that bring us together and that give a voice to the downtrodden and a one-fingered salute to would-be tyrants. At least that is John's contention in his new book, American Fun, Four Centuries of Joyous Revolt. and traces the history of transgressive and oh-so-expressive celebration in the United States from the colonial era to now. And in the hour ahead, you will hear John and me discuss some of the high points in the history of American fun. But uh, first, we talked about the word fun itself, which has no exact equivalent in English, nor in many other languages. I had the impression that it's a pretty new word, and that for a long time, it was used to mean something quite different from today, that it meant really just sort of making fun of people. It meant mockery or or humor, but not the general sense of just revelry or having a good time that it means now. Well, in its, its earliest sense in England, obviously where it came from, it, it was initially a term for mockery. But as early as the... Uh, late 16th, early 17th century, it did start to take on the usage that, that I'm applying to it. Did, did it take off, though, really, in that, uh, in that usage later on, like in the 20th century, where everybody starts talking about having fun all the time, especially in the, the second half of the 20th century? Uh, well, as I point out in the book, is recently uh, tracked by a, a New York Times columnist and its usage over the years using one of these, these Google mechanisms that word has just been on the ascendancy since the, the 18th century. And I think in the, the 20th century, it's certainly gone viral. But as early as the 1760s, people were, were using fun in a pretty common and casual way to refer to just having a wild time, taking a risk. Uh, you point out that the way we use the word uh, grammatically says a lot. We have fun. Right. Like you have sex. You don't do fun or you don't feel fun, you have it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think the important distinction is that we don't feel it. Most yeah. pleasures are, are things that you feel and you kind of receive them passively. And, right. And you, uh, I'm in a state of something. Yeah, but you, have to go out and, you have to go out and get your fun, and I think that's what's implied by, by having fun. And that's why I, I create the parallel with having sex, because it, it's that similar sense of activity. And, and uh, your thesis is that, um, in fact, it's right there in your title, American Fun. Four centuries of joyous revolt. Right. So you're really interested in fun as kind of a almost constitutional <laughs> element of the America like character. Um, and let's go back to you know really what is sort of your genesis story uh, in the book. That is the genesis of American fun, the very first really good example. 
sure. In tracing the the American character or the the American story, we like to go back to the Pilgrims. I go there too, and not just haphazardly, because in the 1620s, uh, in 1620, the the Pilgrims arrived in uh, Cape Cod and founded Plymouth Plantation at Plymouth Rock. And um, two years later, a uh, different Englishman came over just to visit the first time. Uh, his name is uh, Thomas Morton, and his his intentions for uh, coming to America were quite different from the Pilgrims, who, of course, were uh, trying to find a, a place where they can have religious freedom and, and live in, in their uh, narrowly disciplined sort of way. And also, they came here to sort of wall out the wilderness and resist the Native Americans in order to have this kind of paradise, as they, they considered it. Whereas Thomas Morton came over here from the Inns of Court in uh, Elizabethan England, and uh, he was a, a boisterous and satirical and kind of hedonistic person. And he was interested in all of the, the joys he felt the, the wilderness and the Native Americans and this new world had to offer. And when he came back the second time, about four years after that, he convinced all of these bond servants to throw off their chains and resist their master and to form this, this colony that Thomas Morton aptly named Marymount, and uh, they had a kind of a, a free love society that involved plenty of drinking and music and satirical poetry and consorting with the Native Americans. And one thing that was kind of essential about the pleasure that they were having there is that it was exactly what the pilgrims didn't want, <laughs> but they didn't do. And so, of course, the, the pilgrims about 30 miles to the south of Marymount got really rankled by this and eventually sent a militia up to cut down their celebrated, Marymount celebrated Maypole, and put Thomas Morton himself in chains and send him packing back to England. Um, the Pilgrims and Puritans of various kinds who settled New England were leaving jolly old England because it was too jolly in some ways, right? Definitely. Well, they, were, they were more precisely leaving jolly old uh, Netherlands, which were even jollier, and uh, they, they felt that all of their, their children were, you know, kind of as, as kids go year railing over in, in Europe now and go to Amsterdam to get high in the coffee shops. There was a similar atmosphere there, and they were trying to save their kids from that. So they left, actually, Leiden in, in uh, the Netherlands to come here. Right, and, and then other yeah. groups came from England, right? Right. But we celebrate the pilgrims. We don't celebrate this other guy, Thomas Morton. No, we don't. Uh, this lawyer from England who set up what was kind of like a proto-hippie colony, not that far away from, like, the Plymouth colony, right? Not, not so far. It's in, it was in the place of uh, contemporary Quincy. And, uh, yeah, we, that might be how we would try to understand it. There, there wasn't really an equivalent at the time. That's what made it it's so kind of wonderful. But it kind of seems like a commune, yeah. Well, they did all the stuff I think hippies uh, hundreds of years later would have approved of, right? Uh, and they did. Uh, <laughs> plenty of people throughout American history have gone back and looked at Morton and have appreciated him and held him up um, as this uh, noble rebel. You know, you talk later in the book as you go through various great expressions of American subversive fun. You have to talk about the Merry Pranksters with Ken Kesey. Um, Certainly. Were they aware of Merry Mount? back in the 1600s? You know, they make such a, a wonderful match, but I, I, nowhere did I, I see any kind of recognition or even self-recognition of, of, of Marymount. But they chose that kind of anachronistic name, the Merry Pranksters. The Merry Pranksters, yes. Well, they, they, they certainly embraced the merriment um, and many of the, the attitudes. And Thomas Morton and King Kesey were definitely 
kindred spirits. For sure. And and we should say that, you know, Morton, in addition to being sort of a hedonist, I mean, uh, live for the day, uh, do what feels good, he was also really a radical egalitarian. I mean, he was down with the Indians. He helped out bond servants who mm-hmm. were, you know, just one step above slaves. Um, right. Uh, he encouraged real democratic process in his little colony mm-hmm. until the damn pilgrims shut him down. Right. And uh, <laughs> it, it's such a wonderful contrast to the authoritarianism of, of Plymouth Plantation because he, he was actually very eloquent about his, his radical democracy and his kind of his, his deep humanism, which, which w- actually wasn't so unusual uh, in Elizabethan England, but it seemed especially stark in uh, what we call the New World. And he uh, put it to practice, which was which was most interesting. And he was so appreciative of the Native Americans and spoke, you know, wrote so beautifully about, and, you know, even though of course he called them infidels and savages, and you know, as as everyone did then, he considered them more noble than the pilgrims. And he he showed how they had you know a deeper sense of humanity, and that was that was the same spirit with which he apparently liberated these bond servants. And uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, wrote about. Marymount, uh, mm-hmm. about 200 years later, early mm-hmm. 1800s, in his story, right. um, the story was... The Maypole of Marymount. Maypole of Marymount. The Maypole was this pagan, <laughs> pagan-derived <laughs> sort of orgiastic symbol, right? Right, of um, course. And, and it actually it functions in an orgiastic sort of way, because you're going around the Maypole and the, the, the braid, the the ribbons get braided closer together, and you're actually dancing in more intimacy as you go, and... With men and women, yeah. Um, And and he wrote, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote, that this fight between um, Marymount and Plymouth was a case of jollity and gloom contending for an empire. Yeah, Um, definitely. And gloom won out, at least in the short term. Well, gloom won out for quite a while, you know, because uh, after um, Plymouth's little experiment, well, and during their experiment, uh, you had uh, Winthrop, John Winthrop, come over and... uh, right after the, the toppling of Marymount and built his city on a hill, Boston, and then you had the Great Awakening, and which is the, the reign of Puritanism, at least throughout the northeastern colonies uh, until the early uh, you know, 1730s, 40s. But, yeah, it's, it's certainly the staunch uh, prohibitions and morals of the, of the Puritans won out for quite some time. Well, let's, uh, let's fast forward just a bit in American history to that, shining city on the hill of Boston, right. you know, in just the, the pre-revolutionary period, you have a, an incident that, again, is kind of iconic in your history of American fun, right. uh, which is future founding father John Adams, who, correct me if I'm wrong, he's, he's been sent to check out a particular tavern to see if it's really adhering to the, the moral standards of Boston. Oh, I think he just, uh, we don't really know the backstory. I think he just walks into this bar. Um, he's already uh, predisposed against taverns in the months uh, leading up to that. He's referred to the taverns as uh, the nurseries of our legislators in, in this really kind of sneering tone. And, you know, he's, he's, he's not completely approving. But he goes in uh, all the same. He's about 25 years old, and it's it's crowded and boisterous, and it's it's kind of along the docks, and you have probably dock workers, you know, who are well below his social station, is enjoying themselves in, in the most exuberant way. And he doesn't mention drinking anything, but he kicks back and he has a pipe, and he watches just this wild fun unfold, especially on the dance floor, 
led by this guy um, whom he identifies as Zab Hayward, who is this kind of a Lothario and uh, jokester, and he's cracking all these jokes and dancing with all these different women. And uh, you, can, you can tell that John Adams, the way he describes it, is captivated as much as he is also disapproving. And uh, so he uh, he ultimately refers to them as the revel and riot of you know Thayer's Tavern, and you know as such is is saying that this is kind of a, a dangerous phenomenon. And by the way, I think this is his description: fiddling and dancing in a chamber of young fellows and girls, a wild rabble of both sexes and all ages, in the lower room, singing, dancing, fiddling, drinking, flippin' toddy, and drams. Uh, Sounds delicious, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's turning up his nose. But your your contention is that these are the incubators of, of democracy, right? Well, and it was his as well. And he feared it for that because he didn't think it should come from there. He'd prefer it to come from the colleges, for instance. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you need people to move a democracy. In fact, democracy, democratia, people power is exactly that. And uh, I think one of the reasons it actually worked in the colonies is it involved the people. It had to. And that's that's where they got together and they shared their ideas and uh, thrashed them out and disagreed and agreed and uh, planned their actions. Yeah, I think I think the and it's not just me. It's well documented that of course uh, the the taverns were the as you say incubators of democracy, the cradles of democracy. Right. Um, and and this whole idea of fun, of course, then extends all the way out to the political protests of the time. The most famous, the Boston Tea Party. Mm-hmm. In case people have forgotten, and I doubt that they have, especially since given the rise of the new Tea Party, but that was really a party, wasn't it? Uh, well, I think it, it's it's easier to forget that it was a party, if I if I may be uh, <laughs> <laughs> possibly a political uh, partisan, you know. Uh, when we see how the the, the Tea Party has been rebranded, because I, I think there's a, a sense of there's a, a, a certain vitriolic tone that's come with this rebranding of the the Tea Party that wasn't really there the, the first time around. It was in fact a party, the kind of party that you'd actually want to join in. I, I think of uh, one particular young fellow whom I cite in my account of it. This this guy Samuel Sprague, who is a an apprentice of some sort. He was on his way to a date, and he saw all of these uh, citizens dressed as mohawks and running down the street towards Griffin's Wharf, and he said, I want to join the fun, and he, he did. So I, I, it, it really was a, a tea party in the, the most boisterous sense. But also, it was very restrained. If anyone was caught uh, stealing tea, those are the only ones who were, apparently there's only one person who was kind of bludgeoned for that, but otherwise... Uh, everyone uh, behaved very well for all of their their wild fun. Um, did they actually give themselves mohawks? Uh, well, not not in like the late seventies, uh, early eighties <laughs> punk sense of mohawks. You know, they dressed in in costume, and it, often it was you know truly primitive, just like uh, coal on the face sort of stuff. But and they were kind of the punks of their era in some ways, huh? I I absolutely think so, and and. Uh, you, you asked if, if Ken Kesey identified with Thomas Morton. I don't know, but um, certainly Patti Smith, um, you know, one of the, the great early New York punks, identified with the uh, the Sons of Liberty, and, and she she writes about it that way in her uh, recent book, Just Kids. I think that the the punks uh, actually, and certainly the yippies, identified with these people as as kind of their their ilk. Uh huh. 
Um, yeah, we were talking about, you know, sort of the etymology of fun, um, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, as I said, does originally come from a kind of idea of hoaxing or mocking. Yeah, And sure. th- then becomes a more generalized term. And the, but that, never, that original sense never really leaves it. it yeah, leaves a lot, yeah. A lot of its usage. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah right. that's exactly what I was going to say. So we have, you know, the Tea Party, which, uh, the original Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party, and many other political protests throughout the the years, right. which, you know, incorporate both kind of revelry and, mm-hmm. you know, really having a good time right. with satire and real pointed humor. Definitely. Uh, not always, but but often just really inseparable. I, th- I think they are, and it's it's this kind of complex um, at, at, at its best um, fun is. So if there's the the boisterous activity that you're kind of throwing your whole body and your your voice and your reputation into, uh, but it, it's also sharpened and heightened by a, a good, strong sense of satire. And if there's a good sense of style that, that you're able to bring to it, all it's all it's all the more fun. And I think that like really rich, uh, humorous, sometimes dangerous fun can really pull a crowd together. It can, in some cases, pull a nation together. You spend a good deal of your book, American Fun, talking about African-Americans' contribution mm-hmm. right. to, to entertainment, to our idea of fun mm-hmm. in this country for, for very good reason. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you write that they wrote the code for America's most American popular culture and made it deeply, richly smart. Mm-hmm. In the case of African-Americans, it begins in slavery. So it begins right. in you know, the least fun circumstances you can even imagine. Well, I, I think the the least fun circumstances, the most punitive, the most authoritarian, in some in the case of slavery, the most dehumanizing, are often the occasion for the very best fun, the sharpest fun, the most pointed and uh, self-affirming fun. And African American fun of the 17th and 18th century is uh, can be the the best examples of that. I think whether it's the election day festivals and Pinkster Day festivals throughout the uh, the Northeast, where of course you still had uh, slavery uh, up until the, the early 19th century, and uh, you would have people gathering from counties around or within within a town, and not just African Americans, often just the, the townspeople of various ethnicities would would join them, various races, and um, they would hold these dance parties or these uh, festivals that kind of celebrated their own elections in this kind of visible way that made mockery of the fact that they weren't allowed to participate in in elections. Explain a little more about Pinkster and election days. Uh, Election days were festivals that kind of grew up around the official election days, and um, they could be kind of looked at in a condescending way by the European-American culture as being um, African-Americans pretending to hold elections or holding their own rather meaningless, uh, you know, elections to form their own communities and and elect their leaders, which, of course, was quite meaningful within the communities. Um, But they were also, um, as as I just said, an, an attempt to say, we value leadership, we value participation, we value democracy and elections, you know, and uh, this, is, this is us exhibiting that. Pinkster Day, which was a, a bit more of a mid-Atlantic phenomenon from kind of New York down to Pennsylvania and into Maryland, and uh, in Albany in particular, and in 1803, uh, it had gotten to be this really uh, 
impressive event where thousands of people would gather on Pinkster Hill, as it was called, which is the site of the current state capital. And this kind of leader of the community, uh, King Charles, he was getting, getting on in his years, would lead this parade through the town up to Pinkster Hill, and this dance party would go on uh, in, a, in a really sort of obvious and uh, proud way all, all week long. And it threatened uh, much of the population and it delighted much of the population, I think, uh, in both in very deliberate ways. But these were big gatherings of African Americans under slavery, right? Well, yes, under slavery, but slavery was very gradually being phased out, and so you probably had a, a greater quantity of free blacks than uh, you would have had a similar thing in the South. Um, uh, and there were, as you say, there was this political um, satire that went on in them, as well as just other kinds of partying. Um, what about you know fun? And I'm going to put it in quotes because again, right. it was such in in such difficult and horrible circumstances. Right. But fun in the South. Uh, during slavery times, where the situation was far more restrictive than in the North. And I don't imagine they were allowed to go just gather on their, of their own accord any time right. they wanted to. Right. I think that's a great question. Um, in uh, well, the deepest South, in uh, New Orleans, for instance, there's a, a, there was a famous gathering, uh, Congo Square, continued from the 18th to the mid-19th century. And uh, there would be every Sunday um, afternoon, all afternoon long, this uh, massive dance gathering that uh, had uh, participants from all over Africa and all over the Caribbean and uh, gathering uh, to do their, their various dances from you know forms of what might be the form of the ring shout to, to juba. And uh, it was regulated. There was a, a policeman who had put an end to it at the end of the day. And uh, certainly these, these slaves were, whether coming from uh, houses or from plantations, were only allowed this, this small moment of freedom, but they absolutely made the most of it. And similarly, on uh, slave plantations, uh, playtime was, was highly regulated if, if, if it was allowed at all. So... Uh, uh, enslaved uh, Americans had to make it wherever they could. And so it often arose from corn shuckings that would draw people from all of the surrounding plantations to kind of help out with shucking the corn, but would turn into these these great, wonderful parties. Or it would uh, take the, the form of dances in the, in the, the cornfields when the, the master wasn't looking. And often, right under the auspices of, of the master, it would take the form of like, sharp jokes at, at the master. And um, you know dances that would kind of make a mockery of, of the the master's dances. So it, it, it was it was fun that often got quite up close and, and intimate with the the authority that it was resisting, because it simply didn't have a, a, a choice. Um, there's an old argument in the African American community among African American leaders uh, or spokespeople, uh, you know, that, that predates Bill Cosby. <laughs> Definitely. By uh, 150 years or so. Definitely. I was interested to learn um, in your book that Frederick Douglass was among those in a long tradition of, of not so much liking this idea that black folks uh, spent a lot of time dancing and making music when they should right. be dedicating themselves to uplift and, you know, freeing the race. And he used a term that I didn't realize was so old. He, he used the term uh, safety valve, describing how right. uh, by allowing... Uh, let's say, slaves or black people to have their fun 
you know, you sort of let them blow off steam in a harmless right. way while the chains stayed on. Right. Well, I, I guess uh, the the metaphor of the safety valve is probably as old as steam power yeah, yeah. itself. <laughs> um, but it, it is definitely this this metaphor that uh, is is used. Of, I encounter it you know, frequently when people are referring to American fun, and I think it, it's often used inappropriately because it's this term that kind of describes fun as if it were medieval European carnival, just this this brief opportunity for the, the people to enjoy themselves before they go back to being subservient. Um, members of, of whatever underclass. But uh, Frederick Douglass, he had, he had good reason to describe the Christmas holidays, which is what he's specifically talking about there, the, the way he does. Uh, I think his, the, the best reason is that you know, his, his sensibility, um, for whatever reason, is, is more puritanical. And uh, he uh, looks at his, his fellow slaves on his Maryland plantation as belonging to, in his terms, uh, different classes. There's a, a small upper class of slaves who are, are more industrious, and they spend this, this brief winter holiday kind of fixing their, their tools and um, preparing themselves for the rest of the year and behaving more soberly. And then there is what he calls the, by far the larger class of the slaves who, by his description, play into the, the master's hands and Probably in many ways it was that way. The master would give them all this alcohol and like let them get drunk and, until they got sick, and uh, then you know they would behave for the rest of the year. At least that's the expectation, right? And maybe that's what the the master wanted to see. The counterexample, I think the the the, the best example, and I bring this up in the book, comes from Solomon Northrop, whom we know from this. Uh, Twelve Years a Slave. Twelve Years a Slave, that's yeah. right, his, uh, the cinematic version of his slave narrative. And uh, we don't get this in that narrative, which is you know, a devastating, in that movie, which is a devastating uh, movie. But he was a fiddler, and um, he uh, saw various forms of African-American fun during uh, you know, his time as a slave. And some of it was forced on uh, the slaves by the master who would, as we see in the movie, get them up in the middle of the night and make them sort of ploddingly dance for you know, his amusement. But what we don't see in the movie is that he felt that the, the Christmas holidays were these great periods of, of liberation. He, he appreciated the way the um, slaves would enjoy themselves when, when they were allowed to. And he thought that that was you know, an essential part of their you know, feeling liberty, um, even when they were essentially denied it. So it, there are two two sides to that story, I guess. I bet you know the the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, uh, "We Real Cool." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's a great great poem. We shoot cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We real cool. We left school. We lurk yeah. late. We strike straight. We right. sing sin. We thin gin. We right. jazz June. We die soon. Right. You know, uh, these these characters who are black uh, are, you know, inventing forms of escape and entertainment and defiance, but it's all against the background of short lives and, you know, denied dreams uh, is one way of reading it. That's a, a strong theme, I think, within a lot of, certainly 20th century American, African-American poetry and, and song. Um, for instance, uh, Bessie Smith's wonderful song, Give Me a Pigfoot, uh, is a, a, a great celebration of that same live for the minute, uh, die young, embrace your sin attitude. Um, I think that that attitude is also uh, treated quite 
sympathetically in, in Langston Hughes's poetry. That's as I also I think it is in that that, that Brooks poem. It reflects kind of the the urgency of having fun in a in a life that's uh, um, often threatened. Cut short, yeah. Uh, it could yeah. be could be cut short, or yeah. Well, you mentioned Bessie Smith and. Uh... Give me a pig's foot and a bottle of beer. Yeah. <laughs> I think probably almost all my listeners, maybe all my listeners know that song, but let me just play a little bit of that. Okay, excellent. Give me a pig's foot and a bottle of beer. Send me gate. I don't care. I feel just like I want to clear. Give the beer to play a drink because he's bringing me down. He's got a rhythm. Yeah. When he's Bessie Smith there from from what year? Do you know? Is that uh, 1933, I think? 1933. Well, the 30s at least. Yeah. You know that for sure. You know, that's, that song just reminds me again of how complicated the relationship between African-American culture and, say, white majority culture is. You know, um, on the one hand, these incredible art forms that came out of the African-American experience, you know, like all the music and the... Uh, relationship to the language and so much else came really out of a you know a huge need to save save their own lives you know i mean it was a lifesaver it was a lifeline on the other hand to 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 live life on your own terms yeah yeah when the world around you wouldn't allow it but then there's the very quick embrace of that by the whites themselves you know certainly real fast i mean that bessie smith song was a hit right well yeah i i think that an, an earlier and uh, more egregious example of that is, you know, during the, during the Jackson age, the, the, the same time when uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's writing the Maypole of Marymount, uh, throughout uh, uh, Northern and Southern uh, American, white American culture, blackface minstrelsy is on the rise. And uh, there's this, you know, well, you know, as Eric Lott puts it so well in the title of his book on the subject, Love and Theft, there's this uh, desire and there's this uh, kind of intimacy uh, uh, between this almost scornful white attitude towards this pleasure and, uh, you know, this, this need to participate in it at the same time. <laughs> yeah, the fact that white folks put black people down, you know, so often as being, you know, sort of undeveloped, earthy, sexually libidinous, playful, childlike. And then, of course, the white people want those things themselves, and they let black people express it for them, but they get to stay sort of above it all at the same time. Yeah, I I think the, um, the, the really accurate thing about your description there is there's this, uh, cartoonish projection onto African Americans by whites of all of these things that you know are considered forbidden and considered uh, kind of salacious and in many ways it's just completely of course inaccurate uh, but then it's also that cartoon that they want to 
uh, participate in themselves. And so that's when they put on blackface and they start actually living this this cartoon and performing this cartoon. And so in, in, in so many ways, you see blackface minstrelsy just kind of factoring out the, the, the beautiful reality of, of black fun and just turning it into this kind of ugly thing that can you know, only really be enjoyed by whites and their own, you know, projections. Do you think people are overdoing it when they pretty much invoke the same principle in describing, let's say, Miley Cyrus twerking? Hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I look at twerking and I, uh, I see uh, a, a really old dance. <laughs> I mean, there's like very, <laughs> very, very old dancing. It's like For the, sure. the description of, of this, this dance that, um, was made popular by the who's considered the the father of jazz, Buddy Bolden, in New Orleans. You know, at the, the turn of the 20th century, the funky butt uh, is uh, you know, very much like like twerking. The funky butt wasn't wasn't born in you know Storyville. You know, in the you know among the dancers to Buddy Bolden's music. That that was a, a very old dance at the time. So you know, it's just um, this wonderfully exuberant and kind of erotic dance that just keeps coming back. But every time it comes back, it doesn't fail to shock, right? And you know, as, as people um, enjoy it and they love to get into it, there are going to be the people who are completely put off by it. And I guess it only takes Miley Cyrus performing it at the. Um, <laughs> the MTV Video Music Awards to really give it prominence. I want to stop for a moment uh, as we progress from the, let's say, 18th and 19th century to our current times at the gold rush, mid-1800s, mid-1800s. You're out out there in gold rush country. It's true. It's true. And uh, it it was interesting, again, to read your book that California, even back then, had this um, reputation Oh yeah, uh, you know, for a place where the rules didn't apply, where people were uninhibited, and anything right. anything goes or anything went, and there's so much we could say about it. Uh, right. Our time is limited. The one thing I wanted to uh, ask you about and talk about is a scene that you describe from like a saloon, mm-hmm. where um, we are talking about a world which was composed almost entirely of men, mm-hmm. uh, miners who headed out right. there. Yeah, there were a few right. women, but you know, by and large, men had to amuse each other. Right. And so, <laughs> so they're all dancing, and some of the guys are playing the part of women, right? Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, uh, they divide it up pretty evenly um, in this. Uh, what J.D. Borthwick, uh, who's describing it, that one for us, who's just a wonderful uh, writer and uh, illustrator. Uh, he calls it a, a miner's ball, and uh, in the the journals and in the journalism and uh, the letters of, of the era, there are all sorts of descriptions of, of this phenomenon happening you know, through, throughout the, the mining camps. And in this particular case, I think it's actually happening in a, a hotel, uh, probably a really ramshackle hotel in this town called Angel's Camp. You have all of these really rough and tumble, bearded, uh, from what, uh, the way he describes it and how it, it appears, you know, kind of multiracial crowd of men. And they have their uh, buoy knives and their pistols, you know, glancing from their, uh, their hips. Uh, but they're, they're dancing these, these dainty ballroom dances. Um, but he, as, as he describes it in, in this really athletic and you know, kind of boisterous sort of way, and uh, in order to dance these dances, you need both 
uh, both parts, the male and the female part. And the the, the men in the female roles are, are wearing these, uh, they sound like these little patches over their unmentionables, you know, to uh, to distinguish between the two. But when they really get into it, they're, you know, it looks, you know, like a, a proto mosh pit of of some sort, and uh, a lot of a lot of fun. Um, incidentally, I, I recently happened across a book um, by a historian. Uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but Peter Boag, mm-hmm. called "Redressing America's Frontier Past," and it's all about cross dressing mm-hmm. in the Old yeah. West, Wonderful. which which he has discovered was quite common actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, men dressing as women and some women passing as men as well uh, in the old days. The John Wayne version of the Old West mm-hmm. <laughs> couldn't, Certainly. Be, couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> or the Ernest Hemingway version of the Old West. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, marvelous, yeah. They, uh, uh, you know, in this this world world of men, you know, there were there were all sorts of ways of uh, expressing their masculinity and also enjoying themselves or their their femininity, as, as the case may be. Now, you you had said uh, uh, in kind of introducing the subject that that California at the, at the time was this, uh, seen as this place where you know, the rules didn't apply, and I think that that was definitely the case. People went out to California certainly in search of gold, but also they were just kind of on the edge of civilization. But the interesting thing that that I discover, especially in these moments where people are out there having you know wild fun of all sorts, especially you know the pranks that they pull on each other or the, the dances that they have together, just as you know, they're hard drinking in bars, is that these new rules that they just sort of spontaneously invent seemingly among themselves in this new form of civility kind of takes the place of the the stricter rules that are guiding society uh, back east you know the in a the more highly domesticated society that we we see in the the mid 19th century and i i i think that that's a real testament to the the value of fun in the in the wild west is that uh, it, it regulated itself, you know, so it's sort of like the the, the fun uh, on Marymount or in the Revolution, or you know, certainly among slaves who had to write their their own rules. Fun became a, a way for people to um, get along and to trust one another. You know, it's interesting you say that because, of course, our, our favorite fictional depictions of the of the Old West. Mm-hmm. Tend to emphasize the opposite: the fact that oh, people course, were always killing each other, and it's not yeah. inaccurate. It was a dangerous place, and I think that that's what made this so much more important. You know, you had vigilantes, you had desperados, you had people just shooting each other for just like the smallest infractions, and uh, everybody knew that. But uh, that's that's why having a, a strong sense of humor was worth more than a service revolver, you know, out in, in the wild west, because that was the thing that. That really, you know, held people together. It's you know, if they weren't killing each other. Do you know of instances where guys saved their ass with with good jokes? Well, there's a there's a wonderful uh, kind of series of pranks that's described by Dandy Quill, which is a, the pen name for Mark Twain's good friend um, William Wright in, in his book. Uh, the Big Bonanza, in which these guys uh, go out in Nevada, you know, pursuing this this rumor of gold, and of course it just turns out to be a rumor. But there are these real sort of murderous sorts, and um, it's just one prank after another as these people are kind of sorting out their their animosity towards each other, and their their humor ends up keeping them from killing each other. <laughs> ultimately, <laughs> it's kind of charming. Uh, talking uh, a moment ago about. Um simplified versions of manhood in our mythologized vision of the West. Right. Um, I was thinking about 
probably the American political movement that makes your case as well as any or better than any. Mm -hmm. That is the fact that, you know, rebellion and the assertion of freedom is completely coupled with all kinds of merrymaking and jesting and, and satire is the gay rights movement. Well, certainly. Absolutely. It's kind of a regret that, you know, I haven't devoted a couple full chapters just to, you know, I mean, there are plenty of regrets of things that haven't <laughs> made it whole cloth into the book. But um, you, you could certainly um, trace a, a wonderful story of kind of political merry um, activism and uh, just kind of really knife-sharp humor from the drag balls of the 1920s up through the uh, great camp culture of the 50s and 60s and, you know, the Pink Panthers and, and up, up through lower Manhattan in the 1970s, the uh, appearance of, of kind of techno dance culture you know, at the same time that um, hip-hop and, you know, punk are appearing, you know, gays and, L and just kind of the LGBT community is, is really kind of organizing itself around these wonderful, you know, parties in, in really wonderful, you know, costume sort of ways. Um, up through the you know gay gay pride parade exactly yeah and you know the Folsom Street Leather Fair and you know it's, it's, there's there's so many great examples of how this is a political movement that has abided for centuries and has defined itself uh, through its its you know kind of outward displays of uh, bumptious pleasure right right yeah right I mean what gay pride parade doesn't have you know guys in, in incredible costumes right. drag queens. Right. Uh, dikes on bikes, you know, right. et cetera, exactly. et cetera. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it just struck me that this is the ultimate sort of example of. Because it, it shocks, but it doesn't even intend to shock. You know, it's, it's political, but it's, it doesn't, in many ways, it's just intending to have fun. And I think the very best examples of political fun in American history are the ones where they're not at all trying to be political. They're just enjoying themselves because that's what they do, and they don't care um, what anyone else really thinks. Or they kind of, uh, rather, I, I should say, they they take pleasure in, in in other other people's you know discomfort over over their pleasure, you know. Exactly. Yeah. But does it does it always work as political expression? When I think about the '60s, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, the civil rights marches led by right. people like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King were right. very we're disciplined, very serious, very, serious, very formal. Right. Had to be. People wore their Sunday best. They Absolutely. marched in rank and file. And on the other hand, you had, you know, protests like the Chicago, um, the 1968 uh, Democratic Convention sure. uh, the protest. The Festival of Life there that you know, was often blamed, or at least at the conspiracy trial, was blamed for kicking off the riots. And, exactly, uh, yeah. and then and, and in turn helping to elect Richard Nixon, really. Mm -hmm. um, possibly, yeah. Very possibly. I mean, it pretty yeah. much dealt a death blow to, to Humphrey's campaign. Right. Uh -huh. um, and and so that would strike me, uh, just for the sake of argument, as a case where having a lot of fun, you know, and uh, letting it all hang out backfired, you know, in terms of changing. I mean, it caused a backlash, actually, I think, in many ways. Well, if... Um if you can, in fact, you know, blame the yippies for uh, <laughs> for the sake of argument. <laughs> well, for the for the sake of argument, that argument, you know, is is, is often made. But I, I think that the yippies, because they were maybe the uh, the most chaotic um, uh, uh, people in the crowd, or you know, the most seemingly uh, anarchistic people in the crowd, but they they were also, you know guys with squirt guns and you know they they certainly weren't uh instigating the crowd towards violence they they were their idea was to just have this little um 
you know, Marymount's kind of festival amidst the you know the political rallies. But there were there were um, there were real kind of political you know. Uh, thugs who were, were also brought in to, as muscle against the cops. You know, if yippies weren't real muscle, they were just you know kind of flamboyant satire. So I I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the um, the, the really kind of delightful and, and ludic presence of, of the, the yippies caused the the riots of uh, you know 1968. But Abby Hoffman certainly made a great target for the cops. But but I, I really wanted to, to question the efficacy of some of the more, you know, fun-loving political activists who okay. might, say, turn a political demonstration into a drum circle and uh. and a little bit of a riot and right. a little bit of a, you know, thumbing of the noses at the everybody they considered establishment. Did that right. really win them converts or did that alienate people who might have otherwise been sympathetic? That's the question I'm asking. Hmm. Well, there's a. I, I, I suppose there was there was so much chaos, you know, to the the, the political purpose of, of the the late '60s that I'm I'm not sure if if any any of any of those groups really got along very well. And so, you know, when they when they all got together, um, I'm I'm I wasn't there. I was uh, <laughs> <laughs> hardly born. But um, actually, my my dad was there, which is kind of interesting. Where exactly? Um, yeah, just in the crowd, you know, just kind wow. of you know, with the, the thousands there being tear gassed, and um, he he was actually a naval officer at the time on, on leave in the crowd protesting the war. Interestingly, but um, I think that's also kind of evidence of the fact that it was such a heterogeneous group that um, I don't think the the fun makers can be picked out as as the ones who um, are making it especially chaotic. You are definitely in favor of fun. Uh, yeah, certainly, certainly. I mean, I, I'm not a zealot for fun, but I certainly see the the vitality in it, and I see the use value it's had for our nation. Well, do you think um, this is going to make you sound uh, a little more straight-laced and puritanical, I suspect, than you want to sound, but do you think that fun really should have this redeeming extra purpose, that it has to be constructive fun, no. that just sort of wild, cut-loose kind of fun is, is, is pointless and maybe dangerous? Uh, I, th- I think so long as it isn't uh, uh, violent in spirit, it's not you know, self, purely self-serving in all ways and um, isn't for a, a criminal motive, generally, generally fun's pretty good. You know, I, I think that uh, many fun lovers, you know, just by the nature of, of having fun, are kind of self-regulating, and they they respect other people's fun. They they you know they believe the more the merrier. So uh, I I don't think that you know, strategically motivated fun is necessarily all that fun. All right, right. You know, you and I exchanged email before um, we did the interview, uh, before we launched into this interview. Okay. And we talked a little bit about what kinds of music accompanied fun at various right. points in American history. Some right. of the choices are pretty obvious, obvious you know, rock and roll, punk. Um, and I was thinking, though, that uh, maybe the best, more or less contemporary exponent, meaning the last 10 years or so, mm-hmm. of just pure fun is Andrew W.K. Um, as in this song, We Want Fun, okay. which was uh, included in the Jackass movie, which is a perfect place <laughs> for it.
So we heard Andrew W.K. there in We Want Fun saying things like, um, we want fun and you better believe it. We want fun because we desperately need it. We want right. fun, but you don't understand. And, and, and one line jumped out at me there. Uh, we okay. desperately need it. I mean, right. I noticed it in my own life uh, and that, those of my, my cronies that um, some of the best fun was had when we were at our most desperate, you know. Mm, I, I think so. I think that you could say that about America. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. You could say that's the thesis of this book. <laughs> Yeah, But there can be this real edge to fun where mm-hmm. you know that as soon as the party stops, you've got to go back to something ugly, something yeah. uh, desolate, uh, something depressing, you know? Right, which is makes it all the more imperative that you just throw yourself completely into it, into that moment. Yeah, and of course there's the popular phrase now, YOLO, you only live once. Yeah, right, right. But there is a bit of a dark side. I mean, there can be. I mean... It can push you too far, and obviously a lot of people go off the rails, you know, mm-hmm. uh, seeking Certainly. seeking a permanent buzz that they couldn't possibly sustain. And then there's, you know, the fact that, and I'm just doing this just to prod you a little bit, John, because I know right. you are a, a champion of a certain kind of fun, but right. people can have fun doing really disgusting things, you know. Certainly. I'm thinking Absolutely. of, like, you know, those horrible pictures of, like, lynchings where there's Absolutely. a white crowd, uh, all beaming smiles and Certainly, yeah. treating so it like a picnic. And you yeah. bring out the whole family, yeah. and that would be, you know, the the big event of that However frequently they did it, they did it all the time. Yeah, certainly that was, um, I, I think that's a, a form of fun uh, that uh, I certainly couldn't get behind, but I, I can't deny either. There's a there's a, uh, a criminal history of fun, you know, that I haven't written. And, you know, it probably begins with the, the golden age of piracy and uh, is uh, would be a volume maybe twice as thick as the one I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> the next project. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I don't think I'd take much joy from that. But uh, yeah, it's often grounded in sadism, but it uh, or just in sheer selfishness. But it has, you know, it has a lot of things in common with what I call radically civil fun, in that it's often transgressive. Um, it it often involves risk. It, it often gives you a thrill, uh, like you know the best sorts of fun. The worst can also bring people together and get them acting in, in similar sorts of ways. And so, uh, I, I think it's a, an important distinction to make between the ugliest kinds of fun and the most regenerative kinds and the most civil kinds. Because if you don't make the distinction, you you know many people don't know the difference. Yeah. You, you, you know, you you look you look at um, a, a mosh pit. And you see uh, violence, certainly, but you don't appreciate that. Here are people who are all choosing to be violent together and will pick you up if you fall on the ground, you know, because they don't want you genuinely to get hurt, and that they're deriving a certain sort of deep camaraderie from this activity that uh, many people find just horrible. But it's contained in a in a special place, and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that is one difference, right? I mean, right. But uh, you you describe everything from stinky uh, colonial taverns mm-hmm. to uh, juke joints and mm-hmm. ballrooms to mosh pits, like you say. Right. So here's a question for you. You really got into your research, obviously. You you really uh, studied this for years. Mm-hmm. You must have right. thought about these places. If, if you could time travel, <laughs> mm-hmm. which of the many places you write about would you, you have liked to have had fun yourself? Oh, 
yeah, that's uh, that's such a great question. Um, well, I would say every one of them. Yeah. Anything that made the cut for me and was fun, I was like, wow, I wish I was there for that. I, I think uh, Pinkster Hill would have just been an amazing thing to witness. I mean, yeah. also in a, just like an, an anachronistic sort of way. The Savoy Ballroom, um, anyway, or any time from the 20s uh, through, you know, certainly the 40s, would have just been an astonishing uh, thing to encounter, especially to participate in. Um, those miners' balls, that would have been great. Um, gee, what would be what would be the best... Possibly Congo Square. I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I feel the same way. I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall at least. I might not have had the um, nerve to, to, like, wade into the thick of some of these yeah, celebrations. It takes nerve. Yeah. It absolutely does. That's just it, right? <laughs> these people who are doing this have that nerve, and they're enjoying it. But you wonder, would you? Maybe you would. By the way, uh, another musical opportunity here. We talked about some of the tunes that you had suggested to me. You mentioned right. the Savoy Ballroom. Right, and you actually picked one. Mm, yeah, quite so Lucky Melinda's song Savoy. I, th- I think that's especially great because it's a fun song, and it's right. But it's also kind of talking about the radical di- diversity of who goes to the Savoy Ballroom, and, and then you know, it's kind of the wild fun of what they do there. It just kind of this song is just such a payon to the gestalt of the Savoy Ballroom. And this right. is sort of a jump blues tune, I'd say, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say. So Lucky Melinda Savoy, just a little excerpt here. Say, look here, Lucky. What's this place uptown that all the hepcats rave about? Savoy, Bacon, Savoy. Well, tell me, Jack, what's this place like so I can come up and swing some night? Savoy! Where the feet start stomping? Savoy! When the band starts romping? Savoy! Watch the folks start jumping? Savoy! Then your heart starts thumping, the boy, boy, come on and jump for joy. We wanna go, we wanna go, we wanna go there. Where? Yeah, boy. John, now if I were to talk about the basic ingredients for a party through the ages, <laughs> through the ages, you know, at least the okay. centuries of American history that you write about, right? Um, you know, I'd say you need a sufficient number of people. The more, the merrier. Right. right definitely. You probably want some music, maybe some dancing. Uh, you want an absence of police and parents, right? And you probably want some intoxicants. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that crowd of people uh, better if they're a diverse crowd. It can be a difference in age. It can be a difference in race, and certainly you know gender, sexual. So I, I think that the the more diversity, the merrier as well. Um, every age has its kind of. Uh, Intoxicant de choix, and, you know, in the sixties, the, the you know, there's this general kind of rejection of of alcohol and an embrace of certainly pot, but definitely LSD. And uh, you know, in the eighties, it was coke. You know, so you know that's that's always there somewhere, it seems. Uh, but you say the the absence of uh, cops. I think there should also be possibly the threat of cops and the threat of parents. Um, the, you know, the the authority shouldn't be too far off. You know, it's a um, Abby Hoffman has this this wonderful deflating description of uh, when he went to, I think it was Antioch College, where there were just no rules whatsoever. Everyone's just you know, skinny dipping in the uh, the swimming pools and just doing whatever they want. And he's like, he just got so bored within you know two hours there because everyone's just like, having so much unregulated fun. And you know, I, I think a, a really fun party kind of needs that that threat somewhere. 
Um, not immediately. You should know that you're eluding it somehow. Um, but yeah, the music should be good. You you write about the, the jazz age, the Roaring Twenties. Um, right. Certainly, the era most identified with fun in the U.S. Right. prior to the right. to nineteen sixties. Uh-huh. Most of what I know about the nineteen twenties, I, I I'm sad to say, comes you know from maybe a few novels, F. Scott Fitzgerald, sure. and uh, and a lot of movies. Right. And in the movies, um, first of all, almost everybody's drunk uh, yeah. all the time. Right. And also the the thing that that jumps out at me interestingly in depictions of parties. Unlike today, where if you were going to depict a raging party, it would mostly be people like, uh, probably under the age of 40. In these old movies, you often see older people, like, <laughs> totally living it up, whooping it right. up, drunk and carrying on. Um, right. Did fun used to be less age-specific? Is it is it more confined, I mean, this kind of fun to the young now? Well, Robert, that's such a wonderfully complicated question because, of course, we we talk about you know adolescence. You know, is like what ends at fifty or something. I'm, I'm not sure yeah. where they <laughs> raise the bar now, but it's like in, now everyone gets to be an adolescent. But I, I think in in practice, that's really not quite the way it goes. You're right, especially the the party movies are just like sheer youth. But in the 1920s, certainly the the youth were were leading the way. The, the young flappers, you know, in particular, but uh, it was it was a youth culture. But very quickly, uh, by many descriptions and you know, by many accounts of the period, the uh, the older generations were ready to fall in. And I think it's because uh, all of these generations, at least of the, the ones who were resisting prohibition, uh, were kind of in, in, invigorated by this general resistance, and they wanted to get in on the party. I mean that's that's an oversimplification. There were lots of reasons why people were partying in the 1920s, but uh, I think that might be one one of the things that cut across generations. Well, John, um, we talked about all kinds of sort of homegrown, grassroots, mm-hmm. organic kinds of fun, but right. but the other big, at least one other big part of the American tradition of fun is its commercialization, its co-optation. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? absolutely. And you definitely tell that story. Mm-hmm, um, I do. One of the most important figures. Part of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the most important figures, 19th century, P.T. Barnum. He's the other uh, forefather of American fun after um, Thomas Morton, but of a, a completely different kind. Of course, that's the, the entertainment that I referred to uh, at the beginning of this interview uh, that's often confused with, you know, Kind of fun I'm describing. He uh, he was this, uh, himself uh, a, a person who absolutely appreciated a good time. He came from a long line of pranksters, and uh, in his autobiographies, he you know he describes the pranks of his grandfather and his himself and all the friends he grew up with. But of course, he uh, commercialized them and invented all of these technologies of how to separate people from their money um, based on their pleasure. <laughs> There's a sucker born every minute. A sucker born every minute, and uh, he squeezed dimes and nickels out of all of them. So, so my question in in sort of bringing the interview to a close is, where are we now? It seems to me, I'll just put this out again, just for the sake of argument, just a straw man for you to right. have at, that right now, as soon as, say, a subculture invents some new expression Absolutely. of joy or celebration, it is commercialized within a heartbeat. And are we all suckers being born every minute now? Are we all being milked for it? For our well, you're right. That's Barnumism, and that's that's the thing that he invented. He he knew how to take the people's um, fun and turn it into a buck, and that's also blackface minstrelsy. And it's something that 
you're right, happens instantaneously. Something I've been you know, following with glee over the past couple of weeks, as have most people, are, is that dumb Starbucks down in um, uh, L.A. Do you know of this? No, I don't know about it. Oh, okay. So there is a, on, in a, a strip mall down in uh, L.A., this, this Starbucks opened. And it was just an impeccable Starbucks. It had the usual Starbucks logo and the... Um, Starbucks furniture and the Starbucks uniforms and, you know, you had grandes and ventis and all of that, except on the logo and all of these things, it, it didn't say Starbucks, but dumb Starbucks. And so, you know, you'd get, order a dumb venti, you know, and they had like a, CDs, like dumb Nora Jones duets and stuff. And of course, it's you know, immediately very popular, this, this pop-up prank and people queued up around the block to get their, you know, dumb cup of coffee. And, um, I, you know, most people uh, attributed this to some prankster artist, you know, as did I, and I thought it was brilliant, though clearly this person, you know, had some good financial backing in order to do this really great knockoff of a Starbucks. And I thought that, you know, it was a really great joke on corporate culture, you know, who's trying to be so, uh, that's always trying to be so cool and of the people, but it's kind of calling it out, that coolness for just being dumb. So it all just seemed like this this really wonderful homespun joke. I mean, it was shut down by the, the health department because they didn't have a permit because it, it wasn't a real Starbucks. Um, but then uh, two or three days ago, the, the truth came out that this was actually a hoax of a prank, and this is just so Barnum, uh, by someone who's got a new show coming out on Comedy Central. And so this is how he, he used this really kind of populist joke uh-huh. that looked like a prank in order to sell you know this... Um, Kind of commercial product, and um, that's—I mean—that's just exactly what you know, the sort of hoaxes Barnum did. Um, I thought along. you were going to say something even more sinister, which is that Starbucks itself was smart oh, enough. Fantastic! Yes. You know what? I bet that's the truth. There, there's a lot of that now. I mean, right. companies know that they can—you uh, know—win you over if they make fun of themselves, as Certainly. politicians have long known. So that, I guess my question is: Are we killing fun because we're monetizing it so quickly? And so often now, and would maybe the most radical expression of American resistance right now be to not have fun? Well, I think I think that conclusion is really cynical uh, <laughs> because it's <laughs> as you pointed out. You know, Barnum's been killing fun. Uh, you know, since the. Uh, you know, antebellum period, and you know, in in various in this very same way, and it's, it's become really uh, you know the American way to um, monetize instantaneously, you know, whatever the people invent, and you know, turn it into its kind of bland simulacrum. But Americans keep coming up with 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 new ways that are you know genuine and fresh, and not you know not just Americans, people the world over. Um, and uh, I think there's there, there's always hope. And actually, this this uh, kind of Barnumism always gives us something to push back against. We know that you know, however we push back, someone's going to you know immediately try and make a buck off of it, like these people who you know sell uh, flash mobs to companies. You know, it's like you know we can create a flash mob for your product if you want, but um, that doesn't mean there there's the new fun right around the corner that hasn't been monetized yet. It's it's worth. I think it's worth pursuing. I don't think it's it's. I, I don't think it's a worthwhile um, form of resistance to just um, live uh, a dull life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thanks for that uh, that right. license to continue on, uh, enjoying yeah, ourselves. Yeah. Persevere. Exactly. Like the power. John, it's been really fun talking to you. Uh, it's been really fun talking to you, Robert. It really has. John Beckman is a professor of English at the U.S. Naval Academy. 
and he's the author of American Fun, Four Centuries of Joyous Revolt. I'm Robert Polly, and uh, before I take my leave, I'd like to correct something uh, that I said earlier in the interview when we were talking about the song We Want Fun by Andrew W.K. I said that we heard Andrew sing the line, We Want Fun Because We Desperately Need It. But in fact, that line wasn't in the version of the song that I played. It's in another version that I couldn't find in time for the broadcast. But it's out there somewhere. Anyway, I'll be back next week with more fun stuff. And until then, you can check us out online and listen to past shows at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>